FTBD is proudly brought to you by Black Dog Coaching, the only online fitness and nutrition company that work exclusively with people in the mental health space. While other fitness and nutrition companies focus purely on looking good, Black Dog Coaching offers full spectrum coaching that incorporates fitness, nutrition, mindset, habits, routines, and lifestyle choices to support positive mental health. So if you're battling the black dog, there's two things you need to do. Number one, contact your GP and arrange a mental health care plan with your mental health professional. And number two, contact Black Dog Coaching. Because while a mental health professional is a very important piece of the puzzle, it's just one small piece of the mental health pie. For the other 90%, Black Dog Coaching has got your back. For more information, check out www.blackdogcoaching forward slash information. Ladies and gentlemen, my family, my friends, my blood, welcome to volume three of FTBD. For those who are uninitiated, that is Fuck the Black Dog. Tonight, I have a very special guest. Uh, we have Craig with us this evening, who I've known for probably about, you have to be about 18 months now, going on two years, I'd say, wouldn't it? Yeah, nearly two years, mate, yeah. And uh, Craig has uh, what you'd call a pretty exceptional story, and it's one that's actually doing the rounds around Insta and Facebook and that at the moment, so... Craig's background is that he was actually a, uh, a slaughterman working in the abattoirs and is now a full-blown vegan activist. So, Craig, welcome to the show, brother. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Now, before we do crack into it, as always, those of you who have listened to before, we do have a few caveats that we do like to point out before the show gets underway. Okay. First of all, there are trigger warnings inside of this. Um, if you are sensitive to some material surrounding suicide, self-harm, mental health issues, a lot of the time these things do tend to come up in these podcasts. So just be aware that there is potential trigger issues inside of this podcast. Um, the other thing that we do ask is that this podcast is free, always will be free. But what we do ask as payment is if you take anything away from this podcast, if there's something that resonates with you, if there's something that you learn, or if you know of somebody that you feel could benefit from what you hear here tonight, then what I ask is that you simply share it. Share it with a loved one, share it with a friend, share it on a social media platform, share it to somebody that you think can benefit from it. All right, so without any further ado, Craig, mate, let's, uh, let's take it way, way back to the beginning. So working in the abattoirs, man, that has got to be probably one of the most challenging jobs from a mental standpoint that, that I could possibly think of. I mean, you're essentially spending day in and day out taking life. Let's, I mean, let's call it what it is. You're killing animals day in and day out. What was that like, brother? Pretty much, yeah. So I spent seven years in the industry, five years actively as a trade certified slaughterman. So pretty, pretty well hard work mentally and physically um, in the knock and box. One of my roles was a sticker. So every five to seven seconds, I'll be sticking cattle as they'll be stunned or coming down from the chute. When what do you mean by sticking cattle? What does it say? With the, with cutting the, the throats. Cutting yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So and do they anesthetise left... or anything before that? Or it's literally they just come down and just straight into it? They're stunned. They're what they call uh, stunned between the eyes. Yep. 50% um, of the time it's a successful stun by a captive bolt and they drop unconsciously to a point where they can't regain conscious, no longer breathing. Yep. and then the crate or the machinery takes over, rolls them on their back so the sticker can cut their throat. And so if they they're lucky, out. they die from the stun, if they're lucky? If they're very well lucky, yeah, depending okay. on how hard the chain's going in a day and uh, will determine on how, how correct protocol goes. Do you ever get, uh, so did you work just with cattle or was it all livestock? 
I, my my main experiences is is with cattle in that in the beef industry. Yep. Uh, I haven't had any experience with pork or chickens or anything like that, so it's just primarily cattle. And for the ones that get stunned that don't, uh, you know, will die on the spot. So, you, what is it? Did you say sixty percent of them sort of die from the stun? That leaves like forty percent of them who are still kicking when you actually get to uh, when you get to your when you get to your role. Yeah, yeah. So, some of the time a miss stun happens, particularly with fresh or younger slaughtermen coming through or knockers. Um, so they have to be restunned again. Yep. And again, sometimes three, three, four times. There has been two times that I know of in two different uh, slaughterhouses where cattle have got back up out of the cradle and have bolted down the kill floor into the kill yeah, floor right. or the slaughter floor. Uh, you know, they've had two captive bolts to their head. They're, they're just nailing it straight out of fear and on adrenaline. Yep. Uh, the workers are, are all fearful, you know, charging cow out of fear. You know, you want to nail it up somewhere safe. Yeah. Uh, yell out to a foreman so he can come out with a rifle and come and finish the cow off. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How many cattle would you be knocking over a day? Well, it depends what shed. Like a country shed like uh, Bindri out in Varel, I was doing about 900 in, in an eight-hour day. Something like Yeah. Something like Dinmore, which is the largest uh, slaughterhouse in the Southern Hemisphere. They do anywhere between 14 to 18.50 per 10-hour shift. And they've got two shifts there as, as far as I know nowadays. And something like uh, another one over in East Brisbane, another slaughterhouse, is about eight, nine hundred over a seven point six hour day. Wow! What sort of a toll does that take on your headspace? Because I mean, let's call it what it is—you sling an animal's throat up to nine hundred times a day. What sort of a toll does that take on your headspace? And at what point did you realise that this was really starting to, to take a hold on you? It took me a few years in the industry because I was. So I was conditioned, desensitised to the industry. Same thing as what the army goes through. Same thing as bikies go through. They're full immersion in the industry. So you start off as an entry level labourer. They fully immerse you in the in the rough jobs, so you can desensitise the mind to get yourself used to it before they move you up. It took yep. me a few years to totally numb myself. I was on the addiction bandwagon of uh, drugs, alcohol, heavy drinker, heavy smoker. That did all you, start, did you start the drugs and the drink to cope with the job or was that there beforehand? I started to cope with the job. It was getting yep. ridiculous. Uh, as I moved through the sheds, the higher numbers or the high volume of cattle meant heavier drinking. Yeah, okay. And I'm going to take a wild guess here because I've spoken to a few different abattoir workers. That's the culture. There's almost every, every like sort of local I know who's worked at a slaughter and in the abattoirs has also the same thing. It's a very, very heavy drug and alcohol culture. And a lot of the times, you know, I've spoken to three people, including yourself, that I can think of, and they all said the same thing, that it started as a coping mechanism for, for, for the job at hand. Yeah, that is correct. And it becomes a numbing mechanism, total numbing. And then to a point where the brain, because the brain's an interesting um, device up in the head, it can adapt itself for, for so much. And then it'll snap after a while. And this is yeah. why abattoir workers are very on, on edge all the time. There's a high rate of crime, domestic violence, and so forth within that industry. Yeah, okay, yeah. You said it took a couple of years to desensitise to it. So what was, what was your first year in the industry like when you were first getting used to it? What sort of a toll did that first year take? I, I absolutely hated it. I didn't want to do it. But coming yeah. from a country town and living in a country town in Varel, I really didn't have much opportunity to do anything else. Yep. Uh, it was 
you know, you're out west. the bills. Exactly. Yeah, Western New South Wales. I mean, it's not like Brisbane where jobs are a hand picking. Uh, you leave one job and you can be unemployed for six months. Yes. <laughs> you know, you yeah, got to pay your right. rent somehow. You got to pay your mortgage. Um, a lot of a lot of workers out there got families to feed. Yep. Uh, it's just it's one of those industries. Uh, it's there's no back doors. There's no there's not a backup plan. Yeah. Well, at what point did you know? that things were starting to go pear-shaped for you? What were the signs where you started to realise that the job was becoming more than a job and it was something that was starting to interfere with your life? Five years in, I got off the knives and started training. And then I started, I had realisations that, hey, this was enough mentally. My head was starting to go. I didn't, I started to shut down. I didn't want to go to work. I didn't want to, I just didn't want to turn up. Um, the toxic, toxicity of the industry, negative vibe of the place, it was just so depressing. Yep. What, and what, uh, so five years in, whereabouts was your addiction at at that point? I'm guessing you'd been sort of hitting it hard for quite a while. By that yeah, I was, I was hitting it hard. I was a heavy drinker. I was an alcoholic every day. I was, I was on the pot. I was on, I wouldn't say the heavy sort of hard drugs, but sort of pot, marijuana, yep. the odd narcotics yep. once in a while. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I was head, head, in, head into it, headlong into it. Yeah. So you're five years into it. You're battling addiction with, you know, alcohol, battling addiction with marijuana. The job has, you know, definitely gotten into your headspace. It's something that's starting to affect you. What was the actual catalyst? At what point did you go, that is it, I'm out? And how did you process moving from that job into, I suppose, a normal industry or something, you know, inverted commas, moving out of that into a normal life? What was the process and the catalyst there? The catalyst, the catalyst actually was I met, a mentor who introduced me to personal development yeah, okay. got me onto got me onto some books like Think and Grow Rich and How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he and he's a type of mentor who wouldn't who wouldn't answer a question. He'd always he'd always you the, you the whole, to find the answer yourself. Yeah, exactly that type awesome. of mentor. And I yeah. was hungry. I was desperate. I start. I already had that desire that day. I was looking for an exit strategy. Yep. I wanted out. Where to? And he's like, well, read these books and then come back to me with an answer. I'm like, okay. So I read them, Thinking Grow Rich and you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And then I found mentally, as I read these books, I went back into that workplace and I couldn't, I couldn't connect. I couldn't, I, I just felt on a higher, higher plane. Yeah. Okay. So it sort of, it got to a point where you realized that you were above just slitting throats for a living. Yes, slitting throats and talking about the negative aspects of life and the negative aspects of my job and what am I doing tonight and what's on Friday night and, you know, that type of life, the, the events type of life. Uh, as I grew hungry for more, more of this information, yeah, I rose above that and I started thinking about ideas. It's like, well, what if, what if? Yep. And the job itself, it actually took such a toll. So you're diagnosed with PTSD? Yep. Depression and anxiety, yep. is that correct? Yes, yes. Have I, have I left anything out? Did I miss anything out of it? No, they're the chronic three that I was diagnosed <laughs> the three, for the trifecta. <laughs> and did, were all of them able to be traced back to working in the abattoirs? Yes, a lot of my trauma was deep-rooted because once I left the industry in late uh, 2013, uh, I did not get any sort of psychotherapy or, or any help. I didn't even talk about it. I just suppressed it. Did you think you had a problem? And did you, or did you sort of know that you had a problem and didn't seek help or you didn't realise that shit was going sideways for you? I didn't know I had a problem. And I didn't, I didn't ask for help. All I knew was when I exited the industry, my head sort of 
it relieved itself up for for a slot 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 a bit. Yep. For a bit, and then it came back. Yeah, for a bit, and come back a few years later, back in 2017, when I actually had my fucking crisis. And that was right. That was right before you and I met, wasn't it? Yes. So let's let's talk. Are you comfortable to talk about that, Craig? Sure, sure, sure. So obviously, so for those who don't know, uh, Craig was a member, of, one of the first members of the Black Dog Brotherhood. Actually, he was very, very early on when we were still uh, still building up, um, and he had just come out of a very, very difficult time with his with his headspace. Um, and it was, uh, you know, for me, it was good to be sort of there at that point where you know somebody was reaching out when they'd hit that point. But if you want, man, I'd like you to take a moment just to tell the listeners out there a bit about your 2017 because it was a massive, massive and a very difficult year for you. Yeah, it was. I was going through a bit of a rough patch at work. I was transitioning between different courier companies, a lot of work stress there. And I got myself into a nasty relationship uh, with the wrong type of woman who basically gave me six months of utter hell. Yep. Um, and she was... Th- the trigger now with all due respects to women, it wasn't her fault. She just triggered. She was just a trigger mechanism. What unloaded afterwards Yeah. Uh, because of her negative and toxic behavior, it caused me to totally snap and uh, you psychologist like you took, you took off everything. Yeah. The lid came off and I let, I just unleashed of all this energy within and I happened to have uh, some dogs at the time and I ended up taking it on one of my pups, a Marima pup, and bashed it to death and in, in, enraged by this energy or this toxic energy as a way to to release it because I'd suppressed it so deeply and for so long. Yeah. And I was conditioned by the previous industry that was the only way to release that energy through acts of violence. Yeah. And what was the end result from that? Because obviously that, that created a whole raft of issues. Yeah. For you as well. I created a lot of legal issues. I got raided by the RSPCA. I got all my animals confiscated. I got over a seven-month court case, uh, which and then I finally got prosecuted in September 2018, charged, convicted, fined, you know, held accountable, as judges do. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, whole heap of yeah, whole heap of charges put against me. Yep. And how do you feel about those charges now? Like, obviously, you use the word accountable there. Um, you know, how do you feel now that that's you know up in your past and you're moving forward? And we'll talk about your healing and your growth very shortly. At that point in time, once it was done, dusted, and the judges handed down that sentence, how did that feel for you? Did you feel that everything that came out was fair and equitable in terms of what you received for what had actually happened? I, I felt satisfied that the, the judge served me with what I was deemed to be held accountable for and that yep. was fair and just considerate to my own circumstances Yep. at that time. Awesome, awesome. And then obviously off the back of that, there was a lot of um, public negativity that came along with it as well. How did you, how did you handle that with your headspace? Uh, because I got, I got my name shamed through the media and Facebook and my whole Facebook profile got fried. So I'll end up, I lost two jobs and I had a course I was studying at the moment. They got at, at the time it all got fried, abusive phone calls, trolled, you name it from angry. I'll, I'll quote the term pet lovers, not animal lovers. Yep. Uh, yep. Just publicly shamed. And that just sunk me down to another level where I 
planned my exit strategy. Um, I, I had enough. It's like, fuck. Um, yep. I was having nightmares. My PTSD was kicking in. So I was seeing nightmares of screaming cattle, which I thought was weird. I hadn't seen that before. Yep. You know, all in a long time. It just all come back. And it's like, that. Nah, I was like, I can't deal with it. Being shamed. I knew what I'd done was wrong, but being shamed took it to a new, took it to a new level. Yeah. And so I planned my suicide attempt, which was a, a gunshot wound to the head. Um, so two days after my court case, I pulled a 38 caliber Smith and Western uh, pistol off a friend of mine as a former bikey and nicked off to Innisfail to take my life. Um, up in a dirty, dingy caravan park, uh, which I stayed f- with for one night. And fortunately, beyond all the trolling, as I was at that moment where I discharged the pistol and twice, and it failed. The gun was a dud, obviously. Um, my phone rang. If that's and not was a sign. A- I don't know what is. Yeah. I had six bullets in the magazine ready to go. And uh, I pulled the t- trigger twice and click, click. And no discharge at the end of the, the barrel in my mouth. Wow. Um, click, click. I don't know if there were blanks or what, or there was a sign. And my phone rang. And it happened to be a vegan man who actually read my article and gave gave a fuck to actually give me a call and see how I was doing. And uh, a 12-hour phone call with over 50-plus pages of notes, feelings, wow. thoughts. Yep. Total anger for the world. Just just taken out and just destroyed. Yep. And he helped me bring me back to reality to seek the help that I needed, the psychological, the crisis psychological help I needed to stabilise myself. And then which then I reconnected with another man through the Mankind Project, which is a men's circle, and then got me involved in that. And that's when I started to, to settle. Yeah, man. So for those who don't, we've talked about this. So for those who listened to the last uh, podcast that we did with uh, Duncan, uh, Craig is actually the man that introduced both Duncan and I to uh, MKP, to Mankind Project. So it's, uh, you know, it's funny how everything sort of uh, aligns, you know. And even the fact that you're doing this podcast now, I just put the shout out. And it's just pure coincidence that you happen to come in straight after Duncan as well. So it really is a, really is a small wow. world, brother. Now, you did mention uh, veganism there. So this actually works uh, really nicely here to transition. I planned that. Um, yeah. Let's talk about that. So you've gone from full-blown slaughterhouse worker to somebody who has a, a criminal record for what happened with uh, the dogs to somebody who is now a complete vegan, not just a vegan, but a vegan activist fighting for animal rights as well. Tell us about that, brother. Yes, so not not long after I come back um, and got the help that I needed and settled, I made the decision for the animals, not just for myself, to, to go vegan and start speaking up. Although with all the damage I'd done, I just made that decision instantly to, to give the, the animal products away because I knew deep down that wasn't, uh, that was just feeding the, the problem and not feeding the solution. And uh, that was the first step towards my journey towards total veganism and animal rights and I do speak very strongly and firmly on on the belief factor of animal rights and with the MKP it sort of expanded that into what we call a compassionate warrior where I'm help where I'm starting to help teach and create compassionate warriors who love animals for the guardians that mother earth provides as as much as the land that us men love as she provides us with the food that we need to eat and the energy that Father Sky provides us to guide us through the life. 
So it goes well beyond just the health aspect. It's, yeah. it's like an entirely spiritual journey as well. It's encompassing all the elements. So if you look at each movement, they're all singular or light warrior movements. I see it in the animal rights movement. I see it in the, the Extinction Rebellion. And I see it in some mental health advocate movements that they're all solely and focused upon that movement and not understanding the damage that they do around by being you know, a heat-seeking missile on that movement. So by becoming a compassionate warrior, it's expanding that AR uh, belief to more compassionate. Because, hey, I believe in sitting and hearing a man's... Um, sitting with a man and hearing a story as much as I believe in closing a slaughterhouse. Man, there's That's a lot of power. There's a lot of power in men sitting around and sharing a story. Yeah. And uh, I run a uh, men's circle in the last retreat that we did. Who spoke truth that they haven't spoken since childhood, anybody apart from maybe their partners. And, you know, I, I put it out a live feed then, and it was uh, surrounding the fact that once upon a time, men used to sit in circles and share their feelings. And that is how boys became young men and young men became fucking leaders. But somewhere along the line, sitting in a group and talking about your feelings, it went from creating men and leaders to being, that's weak as piss, you're a faggot, talking about your feelings, talking about your emotions. It became blacklisted. You know, we went from being this tribal culture where it was encouraged to sit and share in a circle so you could learn from the elders and become an elder yourself one day to a place of just not talking about it. And I don't know how it happened or when it happened, but I mean, the power of a men's circle, people don't understand it until they've actually been a part of it. I remember when I first really started uh, getting involved with MKP and really started getting in and doing the work and doing the shadow work, it was an absolute game changer for me. Fuck yeah. It's building that desire as a, as a little boy, that desire inside and that hunger to become a man. Yes. And this is, where the, this is where the deeper definition of a mentor comes in. Hey, the business world says, hey, we need a mentor and a coach as a guide because they've been there and done that. That is correct to a certain degree. As a boy growing and evolving into a man, we need a man's defined feminine love to help us grow goes way deeper than the business world because we're evolving ourselves from the little boy to, to a full-grown man, to the leader of our tribe. Excellent, man. I know that for me personally, especially after 15 years in the military, my whole concept of what a man is and what a man should be was challenged massively when I started working on myself and when I started, because I mean, uh, obviously I've, I've shared my story in, in the first podcast and you're obviously very aware of my story, you know, I had a perception of what I believed a man should be and what a man should be all about. And I was so far off the mark. And it's been the last year and a half, two years of my life has been very, very humbling, humiliating a bit when I look back at the, the man that I was and a lot of the things that I, you know, I've said and done and the belief systems that I held in that. And I know it's, you know, I'm 38 now and it's taken me, you know, 38 or 37 years to figure out what a man actually is and what a man looks like. And for most people out there, they got, they got no idea. They don't, you know, the concept of the modern man, it's been diluted through time. And a big part of that is the fact that there's the whole just don't talk culture. We don't share. Um, you know, how do you become a leader if you don't have a leader teaching you, if you're not sitting there having a leader who's lived exactly. it to teach you? And it's conditioned down through our fathers who then teach our sons. And then some sons don't have a father. So they've got to be modeled off their, off their mother as a, as a dual role. Yep. And this is where the value systems get, gets all screwed up inside. Absolutely, absolutely. When this actually, uh, this actually makes for another uh, little segue. So you actually have a uh, your own, don't you? 
have my own. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yep, there we go. Just thought I dropped out for a sec. So you've got you've got your own son that you haven't been able to play a very active role in his life until now, but you're slowly starting to reconnect with him. Is that right? Yeah, I'm in the reconnection phase, um, guiding myself through the minefield. He's 12 now. Um, I'm it's surface sort of stuff at the moment. I'm playing it, playing it gentle, not to upset the bees nest too too hard, too quickly. Yeah. Because uh, it is literally like a minefield with her. I've been absent for 12 years and I've suddenly popped up out of nowhere so she's like yeah Uh, okay did you know that you had a son or is it something that was sprung on you till uh, later on I knew I knew I had a son so last contact I had with him he was three months old I already signed the birth certificate I declared he was mine and I disappeared off the radar yeah okay long road ahead yes it's a long road ahead well, on the bright side, brother, you can look at the man that you've, you know, started to become in the journey that you're on at the moment. Um, it's safe to say that, you know, if he'd known who you were sort of 10, 12 years ago, it might have made things, you know, worse for the long run. Yeah, you know, the man that he's going to get to meet is the man who sits in circles and, you know, looks for mentors to become a man himself, but also looks to mentor other young men, you know, somebody who's open about their own demons and open about their own shortcomings. So I would argue that depending on how you look at it, it could be a blessing in disguise that that first 12 years, there was no sort of overlap between your life and his because it means that as you move forward from this point, he's only going to see Craig the warrior and Craig the, uh, you know, the man who, a man of beliefs and convictions. Does that make sense? Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly nailed it. What my psych has been saying to me all along. It's like I ran away for a security sort of mechanism. Maybe I should should become a (laughs) sign. Yeah. That's awesome, brother. Awesome. Now, while we've got you here, man, before we wrap it up, I want to give you the opportunity. Uh, Where can people reach out to you? uh, Give us some links to your social media platforms. We'll put them into the actual write-up in the podcast as well. But for anybody who's interested in reaching out and connecting with you for more information regarding veganism, regarding men's circles, regarding the amalgamation of veganism and mental health and the whole spectrum... Where can people reach out to you, brother? Uh, my Instagram profile, Craig Whitney Transforms, at the moment. And yep. I will have my Facebook profile, Craig Whitney Transforms, up soon. Awesome. Waiting on all the branding. Oh, big time. Branding's yeah. coming. All right, what we'll do in the meantime is uh, in the uh, comments section of the podcast, we'll chuck in your link for, uh, for Insta so people can reach out to you if they want a little bit more information. Sure. Mate, I can't thank you enough for your honesty. Um, I know that your story, it can be hard to share and it can be hard to sort of get it out there. But for every person who comes forward and shares their story the way that you've done, I can guarantee you that there's people out there who are going to listen with, uh, listen to this and it's going to completely resonate with them. And for some people, it's going to give them the permission slip that they need to speak their own truth and to come forward with their own truth. So thank you so much for your honesty tonight, brother. You're welcome. Alrighty, guys. Craig Whitney. All right, as always, guys, thank you so much for your time. Um, I can't thank Craig enough for his time and for his honesty. For anybody else who wants to jump on board the FTBD uh, podcast and to share your story, uh, check us on Facebook, look for the link, throw us an application. Uh, We are keen to get as many people involved in this as possible. We don't want to be talking to celebrities and that because there's so many people out there who have a story, so many inverted commas, normal people who have an amazing story to share. And if you've got a story to share, we want to hear from you. All right, Craig, thank you so much for your time, brother. Thank you. you.
for sure. Oh, there we go. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care, brother. I'll talk to you soon. For everybody else, thank you so much for your time, and I'll see you on the next edition of FTBD.